You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Um, as you're uh, having a seat, go ahead and open your Bibles. Uh, we're in First uh, Peter chapter 2, starting verse 13. And then put your finger there and uh, find Jeremiah 29. Um, it's uh, in the Old Testament. If you have to use your table of contents, use it. It's there for uh, your benefit. Uh, don't be embarrassed. Um, I, I use table of contents a lot, uh, especially if you're looking for something like Habakkuk. I mean, that's like a page long. Um, but yeah, uh, Jeremiah 29, we're going to be there in just a second. And it's passages like this that absolutely assure me that the Bible was not written uh, from the fountain of man, that God inspired uh, his word. Because when we come to topics of submission, uh, no, no man would ever write that. No man would ever write, start off in verse 13, be subject to every institution of man. No one would ever pit that down and say that's authoritative. They would put it down and say it's authoritative if they were the institution and say follow this, but if they're not the institution, they would not write that. And so we see here something that goes against everything that's within me. I I don't know about you, but everything that's within me just goes against us. I mean, right now you're looking at me. Uh, My my name's Casey. Um, I'm the church planner resident, which means I'm going to be here for a couple years uh, learning uh, from how you guys run things here um, at Stonegate. And then in a couple years, we'll plan out or or replant in a a church and and pastor uh, from a lot of things we learned here. Um, and, uh, and so why I'm here, I get some opportunities to preach and to learn in different areas. Uh, but right now, if you're looking at me, I, I grew a beard for the month of November. Um, I, it, it's red, uh, if you couldn't tell. Uh, and so at some time in the sermon, it might look like it actually catches on fire. Do not pull the fire alarm. It's not on fire. That happened two weeks ago. A kid pulled the fire alarm. Not my kid. I don't know who that kid was. Um, but don't do it, because um, apparently if the fire alarm goes off, we just stay in here uh, and realize if it's a real fire, we'll find out some other way. But uh, don't do it. Uh, but I, uh, I, I grew the beard because it's November, and I'm a man, and I can grow a beard if I want to, and my wife said it was okay, and so uh, I grew a beard. Uh, it's a part of my active submission. Um, but here we go. So when we look at this, it's passages like this that verify in my heart that, that there is a heavenly author that has a different will and a different heart than mine. There are so many things against us when we see this command, be submissive, that goes against us. The first thing that goes against us is just our sin nature. We are sons and daughter of Adam. We are sons and daughters of Adam, and it is our nature to want to rebel because Adam was a rebel. Adam stood in the perfect place, the perfect environment. He had the perfect job working for God, perfect beauty all around him. He had the most incredible quiet time you could imagine, having coffee with God every day. He had this perfect lifestyle, and he said, God, I don't think you want the best for me. I think you're withholding something for me, so I'm going to rebel. And we receive that. It's in our nature. I have two daughters. Quinn is about two and a half. And then I have Liv. Uh, She is about one, almost one. And and Quinn, it is in her nature to rebel against authority. And right now what she has done is she has weaponized her cuteness to rebel against authority. 
And so she knows when she's done something wrong. When she does something wrong, she instantly knows it. And she gets this look on her face. And if it's with me, this is what she does. She does something wrong. She looks at me. She goes, hi, daddy. And it works. It works. It's so effective. I'm like, oh, that's so cute. We should have four more of you. But she is trying to get around this submission idea using her cuteness. If the hi, daddy doesn't work, then she goes with her cute run. And she runs to her room like this. And she runs, and she runs away, and it works. It doesn't work on mom because she's tough as nails. Uh, cuteness does not work against her. But she's using her cuteness to get around submitting to authority. It's in our nature. Uh, but it goes further than that. It, it, it's in our sin of pride. Um, there is an arrogance in our heart. An arrogance in our heart that thinks the authority above us is stupid. We think the authority above us does not know what's really going on and they live in a bubble. If you have teenage kids, you realize that children at some point think their parents live in a bubble and wouldn't last five minutes in their school. And that may be true. You may not last five minutes in their school, but they look at the authority and they say, they don't really know what's going on. Or how about students and teachers? Students look at their teachers and they think, you don't know how the real world is because everyone who can't do, they teach. And everyone who can't teach, they teach gym. And so they think, you don't know how the world works. That's not how it works. We look at our authority and we think the authority is silly. Or how about this? How about workers looking at their bosses? I mean, workers always nitpick at their bosses and they look at their bosses and think their bosses are ridiculous. And they think if only I was in charge, we would have more vacation time, we would make more profits, casual Thursday would be back. And we would put Taco Tuesday back on Tuesday and it would be heavenly. It would all work out. Because we look at our authority and we think our authority doesn't know what's going on. And if you don't believe me yet, listen to talk radio. Apparently, all the greatest minds have landed on the radio scheme and they can fix our government's problems within the fiscal year and apparently their plan to fix the government problems is to yell the deficit into submission and name call Al-Qaeda until they grovel at our knees. I mean, it's that simple. We look at authorities and we say, I, I, I don't want to submit. I mean, we look at authorities and we say, I don't want to submit. And it's pride in our heart. And then we treat rebellion as a rite of passage. We treat rebellion as a rite of passage. If you're a parent and you don't believe me, ask your child what they think your favorite story to tell is. And I bet it's a story of you rebelling. Just a couple off the top of my head that I remember my dad telling. Uh, I remember my dad telling when he was a kid, coming home from church in the back seat, kind of climbing around. It was before car seats and apparently safety belts, and the cars were the size of swimming pools, and so you could go anywhere inside it. And he was in the back window, and he sees a police officer, and so he flips the policer off coming back from Sunday school. And so he flips the policer off. Well, the police officer says, I have a gun, and this punk kid's not going to flip me off. So he turns his lights on, pulls him over, comes up to the window, and Geyser, my grandfather, his name was Geyser, that's his real name, uh, he was about to erupt. Geyser, my grandfather, um, 
officer, what seems to be the problem? Well, your son uh, flipped me off and I'm going to arrest him. And so starts to pull him out and Geyser says, oh, we'll take care of this at home and beats him all the way home. And so it's a story of rebellion. And so sometimes parents, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we tell our children, unbeknownst to them, that if you want to grow into manhood, or if you want to grow in this American ideal, the theme is rebellion, and it's a rite of passage. And it's not something we need to reinforce, because the media reinforces it over and over and over, and they don't make sitcoms about homes and families that are trying to do it their best and that are being submissive to their husbands and submissive to the authorities. They make sitcoms about wives who think their husbands are silly and are stupid and do all these things just to correct them. And so we have all these influences that tell us we need to rebel. And I mean, come on, we're American. I mean, chances are your favorite holiday is a holiday celebrating a bunch of guys who said, we're not going to pay taxes, we're going to stockpile weapons, and we're going to commit a bunch of felonies. I mean, we're American. It's the 4th of July, right? I mean, if you don't don't think that we have a problem with submission, just ask your British friends if you have any. Do Americans have problems with submission? Yes. We have problems with submission. Um, As I was going home, uh, for Thanksgiving to Ponca City, um, Oklahoma, where I grew up. You've probably heard of it. Um, I was listening to Piper preach on this. And one of the things he referenced was, you know, do you trust God with the speed limit? And uh, are you submissive to the speed limit? And, you know, I didn't, wa- I didn't want to look at the odometer. I'm like, I don't know. Um, because I knew I had set cruise control on. And I feel like that's a silly law. And eight miles above is just fine. It's a rebellious heart. What Peter is going to tell us here is he is going to tell us Christian submission honors God. It glorifies God. And so as we look at this, we want to remember and follow how the text has brought us first before he ever gets to this command. And what we're going to see is he's going to say, submit to governmental authorities. And then he's going to say, submit in your workplace. And then he's going to say, submit in the home. And then in chapter five, he's going to say, submit in the church. And he's going to say, the Christian heart is a heart of submission. It's a heart of submission because it's reflective of who God is. And so he reminds us first of who we are. If in your Bibles, look back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, but you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, Christians, this is who you are. You were far from God, but he has brought you in. You were fatherless, sons of the devil, sons of hell, but now you are children of God because he called you into it. He says, this is who you are. And then it goes on in verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see what he does? He starts off and he says, first let me tell you who you are. You are God's people. You are separate. You have been sanctified by his blood. You were bought at a price and you should honor God. But now let me tell you where you are. And he says, you're a stranger in a place that does not honor God. 
If you have your Bibles and you marked it, go to Jeremiah 29. Uh, Jeremiah 29, what we're going to see is we see this constant thread of this picture of the gospel that we fell from position with God. We sinned. We were pushed into exile. And then we are in a strange place, but a redeemed people in that place. And in Jeremiah 29, we're not going to get all the way to verse 11. We're going to start in verse 4 and 7. But chances are, you know verse 11. It says, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And we all love it and we wear t-shirts for it, but it's coming at the end of very bad news. And so if you look at verse four, it says, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel to all exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What does he say there? He says, I have sent my people from their homeland into exile. I used the Babylonians' army, the secular army, the army that does not fear nor honor God to discipline you, and they have taken you into a strange place, and now you are strangers in that land. And it gets worse. Look, look at this. In verse 5, it says, Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And so right there, what does he say? He says, you're going to be there a long time. I have sent you into exile. You are far from your homeland and you will be there a long time. So go ahead and get a garden because you're going to have to eat. Go ahead and build a house. Go ahead and get married and have children and go ahead and plan their weddings and all that sort of thing because they're going to have children, which they're talking about arranged marriages, which now that I have two daughters sounds like a pretty good idea. So he said, scope out your neighbors, pick someone out because you're going to have grandchildren there. You're going to be there a long time. What do we do while we're there? Look at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. And so the message is the same that Peter's trying to tell us that we are in this strange land and we don't belong here. We belong to God, but we should be about the welfare of the city the welfare of the country, that our involvement, our participation, where we are, the flavor of the character that we have that reflects God should be to seek the welfare. And so he starts to build this and it goes against everything that we would want to. And then he's going to say, this is why you submit. And the first thing, if you're taking notes, it says our submission is about God. If you're taking notes, our submission is about God. In these five verses, we see God referenced directly in four of them and then indirectly in one of them. Every verse, it's about God. Look at this. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake. In verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be for the emperor as supreme or to the governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
In every verse, four of the five, God is referenced directly to center us at, but our submission is something to do about God and his nature. And then in verse 14, when it says sent by him to punish, it's not just representing the idea of the emperor sending the governor, it's representing the idea of God instituting the emperor and through God's institution of the emperor comes the governor and so the governor is sent by God. It's about who God is. And so how does our submission reflect God? We would look to his nature. Our God is a triune God. Our God is a a triune deity. He's the only God and he's in three persons. So if you want to explain the Trinity, this is how we'd explain it in three statements. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God is three persons. Each person is fully God and there is one God. And if you were trying to explain to your children, you would try to draw some pictures and that would more confuse them than anything else. And so then you come back and you say, God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is one God. Each person is fully God. And they're going to look at you weird and you're just going to shrug your shoulders and be like, hey, I, I don't get it either. But that's what it says. We see it all through the scriptures. Our God, the only God of the universe, the God who created everything, is a community within himself. And so how does this come with submission? Within the Godhead, we see beautiful acts of submission. We see Jesus, the Son of God, submit to the Father. And he says, I go to the cross. In John 10, he says, this is why I go to the cross. I go to the cross because my Father has commanded me. No one takes my life from me. I give it because I'm obeying the Father. Jesus submits to the Father. And then Jesus, he comes to the disciples after the resurrection. He says, it's better that I leave because I'm sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit submits to Jesus. And so we see a hierarchy, absolutely, that brings order. But if that hierarchy didn't exist, it wouldn't even matter because there's perfect unity within the Trinity. And so the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit, but we see this perfect unity that any chance the Father has to praise the Son and to put Him center stage, He does. Any chance the Son has the opportunity to praise the Father and put Him in center stage and put Him on a pedestal, He does. Any chance they have an opportunity to talk about the Holy Spirit and how great He is, they put Him in the middle and they do. N.T. Wright has this incredible quote um, about Uh, the nature of this relationship of praising. Um, N.T. Wright is an Anglican theologian, and and we we love a lot of what he writes about. He he recently has written some stuff about justification in the Pauline letters that we we don't agree with, but we, we, we love this quote. And if at the end of the quote you don't love it, it's too bad. I have a microphone. So here we go. And so he writes this. When he's describing this perfect relationship this all-glorifying in which they glorify each other, he describes it as a dance. This is how he writes, he says, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, this self-living love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exult, commune with, and defer to one another. When the early Greek Christians spoke of the perichoresis, In God, they meant that each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. The constant movement of overture and acceptance each person envelops encircles the other. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing. 
Not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity of life, a kind of drama almost, if you'll not think me irrelevant, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-person life is the great fountain of energy and the beauty spurting up from the very center of reality. When N.T. Wright comes to describe how Jesus wants to honor the Father and the Father wants to honor the Son and they want to honor the Holy Spirit, they say it's almost like this dance. And right there, if, if you're here, I don't know if you know, but we're, we're Baptists, and so, right, we start to cringe a little bit about dance, and the way we, the, the position on dancing, if, if you can't dance, don't dance. But if you can dance, I mean, raise the roof, I don't know. And so here's the question. If we choreograph a dance, and each person in it is not about the drama of promoting themselves, each person is about promoting the other. That means we're always trying to give the other this important role that at the very middle of it brings them praise and glory. What an incredible relationship. What if we demonstrated that? What if in, in, in church or in family, we were always thinking about the benefit and the good of someone else and we were standing underneath it to show how God relates and we were always pushing someone else to the middle and said, look at them. Look how great that is. How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I be a part of what God's doing in you? And it doesn't mean giving them because we're sinful. It doesn't mean giving them what they want. It means protecting them from what would hurt them. What if, if you're married, I just, I want you to brainstorm with me. What if within your marriage, and it's going to get rough in the next couple of weeks because we're going to talk about submitting in the workplace, slave and masters, and then we're going to talk about submitting in the home, wives to husbands, and then we're going to get eventually to submitting in the church. And so what if, what if your marriage reflected the Trinity and husbands, your wife knew that any opportunity you were going to sacrifice for her, that you were going to be there for her benefit, that you were going to substitute her in place of what your needs or your wants were, that you were going to glorify her, that you cared more about her pleasure than you care about your own pleasure. What if you applied that idea to every area of your life? I mean every. It would be this beautiful reflection, this beautiful, beautiful marriage, a beautiful reflection of who God is. How safe and secure would you feel in that type of relationship? How safe and secure would your kids feel in that type of relationship? And God says, when he says this, be subject for my sake. He's saying, I want my people to reflect my, my nature. And so the first thing we see, it, this is all about God. He's referenced in every verse, directly in four of them, indirectly in one. But then let's start back in 13, and we're going to see this, that God commands our submission. It's a command. And I hate it. It convicts me on every level, but it's a command. God commands our submission. In verse 13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. God commands our submission. When he says be subject, it is an imperative command, and it means to place oneself below the other. And so he commands us to place ourselves below the institutions that man created, and he defines it. 
So there he tells us what to do. He says, this is what you are to do. You are to submit yourself. You are to obey. And so we, we, we stand and we, we, we hear that. We hear that command. And what happens is this, this tiny little attorney inside of your, your soul stands up and says, I object. What if? And then we all go back to Nazi Germany. We all go back to a situation where, you know, the, the government was exterminating a people and you're saying, you're telling me I'm supposed to be submissive to that? And let me just clear that up. If you are hiding Jews in your house and the Nazis knock on your door and they say, do you have any Jews? By all means, by all means, lie to them and stick it to the Nazis. But I'm betting that's not your problem. I'm betting your problem's a little bit different. I'm betting that coming under the institutions of government, that that's not the problem we're facing. And so we can go ahead and silence that little attorney just a little bit. And we see what we're supposed to do. And then we can even see that God says there are times when we don't submit. Um, in Exodus, when Pharaoh was over, that the, the Israelites were in Egypt and Pharaoh was over, he saw them growing and growing. And so he tells the midwives, he says, every male that's born, I want you to kill it as it's coming out. And they feared God and they said, by no means will we dishonor God. And so are there times that we would say, no, we have to honor God above the institutions above us. But this is what I'm, this is, this is what I'm saying. I never wrestle with those times. And it bothers me that it says this in verse 13, it goes on, to every human institution. And it has some descriptions, it says emperors or governors, but it says every human institution. It's this broad idea that we would have submissive hearts. And so that convicts me because it means that I should be a submissive person, that I should have a submissive heart when it comes to my HOA when I was in Warrensburg. My homeowner association, when they told me, like Nazis, I have to have two trees in my tiny little front yard. And I'm thinking, those trees are going to grow up to be big and it'll kill all my beautiful grass. And I said, I'm not going to submit. I'm not going to put trees in there. This would tell me to have a submissive heart. Or even, even more recently, moving into my apartment, Timber Oaks apartment, I brought my dog with me. At the time, I have to pay a pet deposit, which we gladly did. We love our dog. At which point, the, the manager asked me, so how, how big is that dog? Because is he about 40 pounds? And my response was something like, ah, you know, he's probably about 40 pounds. <laughs> Give or take 60, he's a 100-pound Weimaraner. <laughs> he is 100 pounds of gray fur and fluffy ears, a cuddle puppy. Would love everyone. There shouldn't be that silly, silly rule of not having big, cuddly male dogs that just want to lie on your lap. It's a silly rule. Timber Oaks is ridiculous. But my dog has this problem. My dog, although he's a cuddle puppy, has this God-given instinct that he wants to be alpha male. And if there's any other male dogs that might want to breed with other dogs, he's got to silence them because he'll be doing all the breeding around here. <laughs> so three weeks later, after moving in, um, Hayes got away from me and he jumped on a dog. It was a smaller dog. It was a smaller male dog. It was a smaller male, older dog. It was a smaller male, older 
blind dog. My cuddly, gray mess attacked a blind dog. And so we broke him up. The guy was so gracious, he should have slapped me around or sued me. And he was so gracious, I took Hayes, beating him all the way upstairs, put him in the apartment, called my parents, and I escorted the prisoner like contraband to Oklahoma. And we saw him for the first time come Thanksgiving because he's a prisoner. And so we come to this and we say, sure, I'll obey God's command of submission until it just seems silly to me. And then we don't submit. And what we see, God commands our submission. He commands it to every human institution. And so it answers the question, what are we to do? We're to obey. It answers the question, who are we to obey? We're to obey all these institutions because in verse 14, the governor sent by him. And then it even gives descriptions of what that government's supposed to do. Look at verse 14 at the end. It says, to punish. Literally means revenging, vengeance, punishment those who do evil and praise those who do good. What's the role of government? The absolute central role of government is to punish those who do evil and elevate those who do good. To punish those who harm and do evil and elevate not the rich, elevate not those of a political party, elevate not those of a race or a gender, but elevate those who do right. And he tells us, be submissive to that government. And so we first see that our submission is all about God. Then we see God commands our submission. And now look, the third thing we see, God is seen in our submission. In verse 15, it says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He says, when we live as servants of God, God is seen in our lives. The triune God of perfect harmony that is always praising the other. Perfect love, perfect community, perfect paradise, perfect everything. It starts to be seen in our lives because God is seen in our submission. And so let's walk through that. Verse 15 says, for this is the will of God. When they use the term will of God, He is not using, like we like to use it, who am I supposed to marry? What school am I go to? We use it in that, and that's a sense of the will of God. But we are looking at, this is saying the will of God is God's will, is his way of accomplishing his desires. And so the way that God wants to get himself out there, that people would know about him, is that we would be submissive. And so look, it, it says why. It says why. It says so that we would silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is Peter quoting back Matthew 5, 16, that we should, as we we do our good works, we should let our shine before men that they might see them and worship our Father in heaven. It says our greatest evangelistic tool is living in such a way that when a lost world around us accuses us, slanders us, when they try to punish us, when they harm us, they would look foolish. Because when our actions are seen and our hearts are exhibited, they would say, those are people who honor God. And so God is seen in our submission. But it goes on. He he, he pulls back to who we are. Look in verse 16. He then says, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. 
what Peter is saying is the way that I'm asking you to live is something that only God's people can really, really do. And so if we want to look at this freedom, look, look back, just go back a few verses to verse 11 and 12. We see this freedom. It says, Behold, I urge you, in verse 11, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He is talking about a freedom from the inside, that we are no longer slaves to the passions that would control us. We are no longer slaves to live for our comfort or the approval of others or the fear of man. We are no longer slaves to that. We can rise above it because God has redeemed us from that. He saved us from that. We don't have that slave master. It's been beaten. We can stand against it and live for God. He's saying there's a world outside that is still in slavery to the inside. They're in slavery to their passions. He says, you have been freed. So he says, we are free from the inside. But it goes on. He says, those inside passions, they wage war against your soul. And so the idea is that you would fight against them. You have the freedom to fight. It goes on, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He quotes this just a verse later. He says it again. So we are free from the inside. But when it says keep your conduct among the Gentiles, it's honorable. He's saying you are free from the outside. The forces that are outside of you that would attack you, you have been freed from them. And so in your freedom, what should you do? He says, be submissive. Peter's saying, Christian, because of what Jesus has done for you, because of his character, of who he is in the triune God, because of all of that, your freedom, it can't be used to cover up evil. It has to be used to honor God. Isn't that that what we see in Jesus? I mean, isn't that what we see? Jesus was not obligated to die on the cross for us. In John 10, he says, I'm obeying the command of my Father. I could easily walk away. But he made himself subject to the Father. He had a submissive heart to glorify the Father. And we are the benefits of that. And now we are free from the passions within and from things outside of us so that we can live. And it goes on. Look at verse 16. It says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. How many times do we use this great gift that God has given us, the salvation that we've been given, do we use it as an excuse for not obeying commands or we use it for an excuse for not honoring God or we use it as an excuse to be lazy or we use it as an excuse because the priesthood of the believer, this incredible gift given to us, we use it as an excuse to escape discipline from Christians who love us. And so we hide a part of our lives. We use our freedom to cover evil. And this says, don't cover it. This is telling us as Christians, we should live in community. And so for us here, we do home groups. You need to be in community. You need to be in home groups that people know you, that they refuse to let you ruin yourself. And so they will know all the areas of your life. They'll know your blind spots and where you might hurt yourself. And they will stand in front of you because they will say, I love you so much as family. I will not let you destroy yourself. You need to be known, refusing to cover up sin. That means... That's not just a you level, that's an all of us level. You need to know 
Rodney's heart, the staff's heart, is that we refuse to cover up sin. If one of your ministers messes up morally or one of your ministers makes a huge mistake, it will be proclaimed to you. You will know about it. We will not hide sin because we believe that sin that's exposed to the light of Christ starts to shrink and follows in repentance. But sin that's hidden in darkness festers and rots and decays. And so it's this commitment. He says, in your Christian freedom, don't cover up evil. And so what we see that our submission is about God. Our submission is commanded. God is seen in our submission. And then the fourth thing that we see, God is glorified in our submission. God is glorified in our submission. In verse 17, it says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. But we, we understand this in the book end of this passage. If you look back up in verse 13, it tells us why we're submissive in our hearts. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake. Our problem, my problem, I don't want to include you, my problem When I see a command like this, submit yourself, put yourself under, all these excuses start to come up. And ultimately what I feel is, God, you're giving me commands, but I don't think you really know what you're talking about. And so I will rebel where I think I should rebel. And so ultimately we're looking at the very nature of who God is. the very nature of who he is. And we're saying, you don't know what true pleasure is. He says, true pleasure, true freedom is gonna be found in a submissive heart. And so I'm commanding you to do it. And we're saying, God, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea. I can't have freedom. I can't have pleasure if I am subject to rules that are silly above me. And we're saying, God, you don't know. And we stand and we look at the triune God and his nature and we say, that's not, That's not true happiness. True happiness is found somewhere else and we reject the command. And we say, your glory is not worth it. I'm going to stand for my glory. It's a rebellious heart. If you have your Bibles, go to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is this this beautiful area where it, it just talks a little bit about the nature of who God is. And so it goes back to creation. And so we see the Trinity in all of Scripture. It starts in Genesis 1.26 where he says, let us create man in our image. It's plural. He says man is meant to be in community. He's meant to express. And then he made Eve to make that even more of a great picture that we cannot be alone. God didn't intend to make a me. He intended to make a we. This idea of community... And so then he comes along and we see Proverbs 8 stand as a witness of what happened at creation. And he says, I want you to know what it was like. Because what happens so many times, we see our way and it looks like it's vibrant and life and, and joyful. And we see God's way and his nature and it looks like less. And so Proverbs 8, we have personified wisdom, which you could take that to be the Holy Spirit, or you could take it to be Jesus, but we see personified wisdom bearing witness of what creation was like in the character of the Trinity. And so it says this, Proverbs 8, verse 27. It says, when he, 
When God established the heavens, I was there. When he drew the circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so the waters might not transgress his commands, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was, delight, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in the inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Look at those words to describe what that presence was like. I was delighting, I was rejoicing, always rejoicing, delighting. The word at the end, delighting, it's used to describe frolicking and dancing. And so the idea is it was so excited it was so excited that, that I just sort of started to dance. I just started, started to break out in the opera of my mind, and I started to dance. And I don't know what that would look like to you, but it's this beautiful picture of exuberance. And so what it's saying, the nature of God is all thirst quenching. It has all passions to be fulfilled. And so when he gives us commands that we wouldn't understand, the question is, do we trust him because we see that nature in Jesus? Or do you see the things of God as less? In Proverbs 8, it says, It was so exuberant. There was so much joy that I just had to break out into a dance. I mean, he looks at it and he says, it was incredible. And do we see Jesus like that? Do we see his commands like that? And so when I come up against a rule, an institution, a man, that doesn't really make sense to me, but it's not a moral thing, it's just a convenience thing, I don't want to do it, do I have a submissive heart? Because I trust God. I'm submitting for the Lord's sake. And so it's so incredibly convicting. And then in verse 17, it kind of has the end. And it says everything. And so the first thing says, honor everyone. And it tells us, we submit ourselves for the world's sake so that they might see Jesus. Do we see the world around us as an opportunity that they would see our character and how we live? They would see our repentant hearts, that it's not about us having it together, but it's about us loving Jesus and us walking in the gospel that he gave us. Do they see that kind of trust that you honor them? It doesn't mean obey everything. It means honor them. It means that you will have disagreements, but do you disagree in a way that's honoring? And then it goes on. It says honor everyone. Then it says love the brotherhood. So it elevates on the bottom level. It says honor everyone. And then it says love the Christian family. And it doesn't just mean here at Stonegate. It means the Christian family everywhere. When we disagree with some doctrines or the way a church might do it, are we loving in that disagreement? Do we slander them or talk foolish of them? Or are we loving that people would know us that we love the family? Do we hurt when a congregation across the oceans is persecuted against? Do we look for ways to sacrifice for them? Is that our heart? Do we love the brotherhood? And so he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. And then the key to it all is this, fear God. Fear God. We submit ourselves for the Lord's sake because we desire to bring glory to God. We desire for his name to be more glorious and more known than our name. We desire for him to be at the throne of our life. And so it means we're constantly pulling our flesh back, 
pulling our sinful desires and dethroning it, constantly doing that because it just creeps up. And then it comes back and it says this, honor the emperor. And if you want to see how this would order itself, on the bottom level would be honor everyone and honor the emperor because the emperor is just a man. And so that means there will be times that we disagree. And do we honor him in our disagreements or do we slander him? And so it says, honor them, and there is room to disagree, and there are times to disobey, but we are not dealing when there's legal ways to get involved and to change that. We should do it because it's honoring. And then above that, we have love the brotherhood, love the Christian family, that people might see how we love each other and honor the world around us, and they might glorify God. But what keeps all that in perspective is the fear of God. You see, I The fear of God will free you. It will free you from the fear of man. And so when you come in a situation that you don't want to be submissive for the Lord's sake, if you really reverent God, it frees you from the fear of peers, from the fear of government, from the fear of loss. So he says, fear the Lord. When we started... We talked about that little, that little attorney standing up in our heart saying, I object. I, I would just contend that if you don't fear and honor God enough to be submissive to government, you won't fear and honor God enough to stand against government or to stand against tyranny, or to stand up. When we go back to the situation of Nazi Germany, I I contend if you don't have a submissive heart to be submissive when you don't understand because you fear the Lord and love the Lord and honor the Lord, I I bet we would just kind of come alongside with the the Nazi Germany and, and just say, yeah, that's fine. The fear of God works both ways. And so God says this, Be subject, have a submissive heart because it glorifies me. And so closing your Bibles and just being real still for a second, I want to run us through some questions. Um, Several weeks ago when Rodney uh, started uh, telling me I was going to preach this this week and um, started looking at what verses I'd be doing, I I, I didn't really want to do these verses. Because I knew when I studied him, I would discover a rebellious heart that I want to protect. And so just with your, your heads down, your eyes closed, just being still, some of the questions I, I want to I kind of just resonate on your heart is this, are, are you submitting for the Lord's sake to the authorities around you? And where you disagree, is it honoring or do you fall into childish name-calling and childish slander? That does not honor God. And so the first question is, am I submitting to to authorities? And it's a representation of my trust and honor for God. Do I trust God? Do I strive to live a life that would reflect his nature? And we see his nature in Jesus that was lived before us, that he submitted to the will of the Father and he died upon a cross. 
or in this moment? Is your rebellious heart starting to be laid bare? And what's underneath that level of rebellion to physical authorities here is rebellious heart toward God. And so the same way we look at authorities and say, that's, that's stupid. We look at God and we say, you're stupid. When we looked at Jeremiah 29 and we also looked at Genesis 1 and then Genesis 3 at the fall, what we see at the very nature of our God is this honoring, submissive spirit where Jesus submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son. But this all-encompassing, I want to honor the other and praise the other. We see this beautiful relationship and it's far more than what we think. We also see the threat of the gospel. In Genesis 3, when man fell, Adam, his rebellious heart, looked at God and says, you don't know what's best. And he sinned. He said, I know what's best. It was a rebellious nature. And we inherited that. And so what happened was Adam and Eve were exiled. Just like Jeremiah 29, just like 1 Peter chapter 2, we find ourselves in exile. We're estranged. We're in a strange land among a different people. We're far from God. And so they were forced to leave the garden. And in the entrance of the garden, God put an angel, and it says that that angel held a fiery sword. And it has this description. It says the sword swings in all directions prohibiting Adam and Eve from ever going back to get to life, to get to the tree of life. And so that sword, it's a picture of God's judgment. Sword is always a picture of judgment. That's why the government holds it. Sword is always a picture of God's judgment. That's why he sends the sword. And fire is also a picture of his judgment. That's what consumes, at the end of this time, it consumes all the evil. And so the idea is we can't go back to life unless we fall under judgment. And judgment destroys. And so we need someone to find a way back. And Jesus went through that sword. The judgment of God fell upon Jesus. So we can have life again. And it's freedom from within. And it's freedom from without. And so we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus because he provided a way to the tree of life. He hung on a cross and God's judgment, God's wrath fell upon him. And so there's, there's two responses. One is a response of repentance, of God, I'm so sorry. My heart is just not submissive. And I take these little childish jabs at authority above me every chance I get. I repent. I am sorry. Help me from this struggle within that pollutes my mind and pollutes my mouth and dishonors you. So in a moment, when we take communion, as we worship, it would be a time that we would repent. Or, 
You don't know Jesus. You look at death and you cower because you sense judgment falling. And you need to come under Jesus. And you need to confess him as your Lord and Savior. And so it's perfect opportunity that we would take communion. Everyone look up. It's a perfect opportunity that we would take communion. We have three stations, two up here to my left and to my right and one in the back. And as we worship, Kevin will direct us in worship. And it'll be an opportunity for you to come and to celebrate what Jesus has done on your behalf. The only barrier around our communion table is that of belief. If you're visiting and and you're a part of another church, but you trust and treasure Jesus for your salvation, we invite you to participate in a physical act that demonstrates what Jesus did for you. We take bread that represents the body that was broken because it's in that hope we can be made whole. Because Jesus bore that and was broken for us. We dip it in in, in the juice that represents his blood because it was his blood that purchased our life. And it's for all of God's people. But if you're here and you're investigating Jesus and what that's all about, we would ask you to simply take Jesus. And so in a moment, as we worship, as you work with the repentance in your heart and where you stand, before you come to the table, whenever it moves on you, come to the table and take it, take the communion and and then sit back down and worship. But that our worship would extend beyond these walls, that people would see us and they would say, those Christians, although I want to say all kinds of slanderous things about them, they seem to reflect something I don't have. And so if in that moment of repentance or that moment of you just want someone to pray for you. We're also going to have some home group leaders. They'll be by these front doors and they're there if you just want someone to pray with that you would say, I need your prayer here. They would love to pray for you. Father, Lord, we love you and uh, we're convicted uh, by what your word would say and uh, we're shamed that really our, our lack of submission in our heart is selfishness upon our glory that we refuse to give up our comfort or our control or our assuredness that we would win the hearts of people. We refuse to step sideways to let you be preeminent. So Lord, would you move us there? As we sing, would it be a beautiful, a beautiful act of worship for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.